Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's June 1901 and there's trouble brewing like a North Sea storm around the British Isles. The main force behind this political hurricane is a diminutive but loud woman called Emily Hobhouse. With the suffragette movement in its infancy, there's nothing about Hobhouse that is a wallflower. In fact, you could say that it was precisely because of courageous women like her that the entire suffragette movement gained momentum. Still, much of what was to happen in that social and political project emerged after the First World War, when women who had been building artillery pieces and loading ammunition into crates suddenly were told that they needed to go home and put on curlers and become housewives again. After the freedom they had experienced and earning their own living, that was always going to be a tough sell as the soldiers marched back from the Western Front. But here we are, 13 years before the First World War, and tracking that truly fascinating person called Emily Hobhouse. Sir Alfred Milner, the Cape Governor, referred to her as that screamer, always complaining. Milner, ironically, was on board the same ship that took Emily Hobhouse from Cape Town to Portsmouth in England, although the two gave each other a wide berth, if you excuse the pun. So on the 8th of May, the Saxons set sail from Cape Town. As with the habit of those on these long journeys, Hobhouse sought out Milner in private, but he avoided talking to her. Only after the Saxon had passed Madeira did an opportunity present itself. In the course of their conversation, she found out why Milner had been unwilling to meet her. In the preceding months, he had received more than 60 reports, all containing personal allegations against Hobhouse. She was accused by the camp commanders of inciting unrest and playing politics. That was because Hobhouse was determined and had facts at her fingertips. So what better way to deflect her truths than accuse her of malicious political intent? So after the Saxon docked on the 24th of May, Milner and Hobhouse parted ways. Emily Hobhouse went to her bedsit in Chelsea, while Alfred Milner was received by four cabinet ministers, including Salisbury, Chamberlain, Balfour and Lansdowne, as well as Lord Roberts, who was the commander-in-chief in England. Hobhouse threw herself into her work trying to lobby politicians, and she could not be easily ignored as her relatives were of the upper classes. Her uncle and aunt, Lord and Lady Hobhouse, opened a few doors, as did Lord Ripon, who was Chamberlain's predecessor as Secretary of State for the Colonies, a powerful position. Ripon was also the president of the South African Women and Children's Distress Fund. Finally, Emily Hobhouse met the opposition leader Campbell Bannerman, or CB as he was known. Eventually, the War Minister Broderick agreed to see her on the 4th of June 1901. And of course, she pulled out a list of recommendations and gave these to him. First, she demanded the release of all Boer women and children in the camps who had relatives or friends in the Cape who could provide for them. This was irrespective of whether they were the families of those surrendering, still fighting, or the men who died in the field. Secondly, she demanded that no more women and children be sent to the camps. This is critical. Had the British listened to her at this point, tens of thousands of deaths would have been avoided. Thirdly, she demanded a bilingual director at these camps who was to be a woman. This by itself was revolutionary. Men were in charge, and here was a woman suggesting that women run the camps. Fourthly, she suggested that philanthropic, or what would be called NGOs, should be involved in the camp administration. Whatever your politics or belief in the role of women in life, you cannot fail to be impressed by this amazing person who was way ahead of her time, cajoling her own government in 1901 to do things that only now in 2019 are regarded as normal. Unfortunately, Broderick was unmoved. 
He listened politely over the hour they were together, promising to take a good look at her suggestions, but he promised nothing more. That was a big mistake. Let's just say Hophouse took the attempts by the British government to avoid her report very badly. She had seen babies dying, adolescent girls starving to death, camps full of civilians run by military officers, rape, typhoid deaths, threadbare open bell tents with 16 women and children stuffed inside, no fresh water, a lack of food, two doctors per 5,000 civilians, and a lot of carelessness. She didn't need some overdressed Edwardian fop to tell her what was acceptable or not in South Africa. This was not the person to ignore after she presented her findings. But somehow, the British government decided that their citizens would regard her as a nutcase and move on. But they didn't. This tale resonates and echoes down the ages. It's about now that British soldiers heading back to England from South Africa began to notice that their arrival at the docks were greeted with muted hellos and averted gazes. Like the Russians who invaded Afghanistan and eventually became an abusive invasion army, or the Americans in Vietnam, the British and Americans and Australians in Iraq. Something had gone badly wrong. The businessmen could make their killing selling arms, ammunition, logistics, but the soul of the war had been bent out of shape. Hophouse gave her 15-page report to the Committee of the Distress Fund in June, which contained what she called the plain facts. It consisted of some letters home and a summary of the camp's chief defects, including lack of fuel, bedding, soap, clothes, food, water, overcrowding, bad sanitation. She believed the entire system to be cruel and should be abolished. In her conclusion, she wrote, Since Old Testament days was ever a whole nation carried captive? She also added that things were so bad that black men hired by the British were now in charge of white women. A scandal. This was the report which coupled with Emily's personal testimony that sent a shockwave through British politics at the time. As we'll hear next week, methods of barbarism became the catchphrase of 1901. But let's swing back to South Africa to see what was happening on the ground. Most of the Boer generals had decided to lie low for the winter as water was scarce and they were now short of everything needed to conduct a proper war. The biggest issue, apart from dynamite and ammunition, was clothing. It was the beginning of June when Denise Reitz and his three German colleagues began to shoot Springbok and Blesbok on the felt for Bultong and then set out once more seeking to invade the Cape Colony from where they were in the Free State. This group, led by a youngster who was not yet 20, faced a blizzard on the first night after leaving the Northern Free State. We were halted beside a waterhole without shelter for man or beast, with the result that towards morning my little grey mare broke loose, maddened by the pelting earth and pebbles. She fled down the storm and I never saw her again. If you have not experienced the high winds on South Africa's plains or felt in the winter, it's hard to understand just how violently cold these can be. The felt takes on a look like Mongolia with undulating open grass, brown at high altitude. This is what drove Rates's mare mad, and she could not take the tiny granules of sand that end up blasting into your body until you're numb and catatonic. The German student, Polacek, had a spare horse, luckily for Rates, and he was back in the saddle. The blizzard continued the next day, but the group decided to continue pushing southeast. It was then that they passed a famous landmark. We passed Kopi Alien, where my brothers had been ridden down with the ACC last year. 
Kopi Alien could be called Lonely Hill, as it was a conical buttress surrounded by the plain, empty of anything, and symbolic really, if you consider Rates and his friends' predicament. It is a curious isolated hill visible for 60 miles around. As a boy, I had sat on its summit watching the game-covered plains below, and now as then, the great herds of antelope and troops of wildebeest were grazing at its foot. Unfortunately, they no longer graze at its foot now in the 21st century. But then, Rates climbed the hill for old time's sake, he says, and also to take a good look around. Everything was abandoned, farms, towns, there was no human being for miles, black or white, no domestic animals. There were now only a handful of Boer fighters in this area, as the freezing winds had driven most to either surrender or to return to their protected areas. Now Rates found nine of these Boers living in a lair. They were a party of free staters who were hiding near the Sand River Railway Bridge. After trying to derail a train, they ran straight into a British blockhouse and had been driven away. So instead, these men had decided to head towards the mountains in the east near the Basutaland border. Together, these 13 rode over the railway line between Bloemfontein and Johannesburg, avoiding the British blockhouses and camps. There was a thick mist. It was eerily quiet. No animal could be heard. But now, in the coldest part of the night, one of Reitz's German friends disappeared. After we'd been going for some hours, we found that Kluver was missing. We called and whistled and fired shots, but got no reply. Somehow their close friend and colleague had been plucked away in the dark of the night. They retraced their steps for more than a mile, but they could not stop. The faint streaks of light were breaking the dark from the east, and Reitz turned and headed east once more. Kluver was subject to epileptic fits. Their brother-in-arms may have had a convulsion in the dark, and no one heard him fall from his horse. Three or four times since being with us, he had fallen into convulsions, and we supposed one of these attacks had come upon him while he was lagging behind. The night was so freezing that to lie unconscious on the ground meant certain death. They were caught in a quandary. Remain behind and search for the friend in the morning, or face capture as the chilly light began to break. Field Cornet Butter, who is technically the highest-ranked officer amongst these remaining men, then said it was essential to cross the blockhouse line before the sun rose. So we continued our journey somewhat heartlessly, I admit, but we could not afford to lose the chance of getting through under the guidance of men who knew the lie of the blockhouses. It was four in the morning when they reached a hollow between two fortified posts and crossed the line without incident, but all were thinking about their German brother-in-arms. We never heard of Kluver again, and I have no doubt that he was dead by morning, for he was not strong enough to have survived that winter night in the open. The winter sun warmed the men as they rode up into the foothills beyond the railway, and for the next two days the little band made their way through increasingly mountainous territory, until they reached a place called Wonderkop, a high mountain which featured a cave where Field Cornet Butter and his men had created their lair. It was an ideal position, hidden from the British patrols and columns that were sweeping across the felt at that time. Small private bands like these plagued the mind of Lord Kitchener, who was trying to mop up the remaining resistance to the empire. Porter used to lead a commander of 300 men, but the misfortunes of war meant they had dwindled away over the past year. Many had been killed or wounded, others had been captured, some had surrendered, while the handful had ridden away to join the larger commander still operating to the north. Boerter called himself Field Cornet, but he really only had six men by his side, two of whom called themselves corporals. 
but a few good men can cause an entire army a headache, as we know from the French resistance in the Second World War. As long as the civilian population support these small bands, they can continue technically to fight as long as their morale holds. And because of their lair, morale was good. We had reached a very snug haven, writes Rates. The owners of the farm were gone, but there was plenty of good clean straw in the barns to lie on, and in a cave in the cliff overhanging the homestead was a store of wheat, a welcome change from our eternal diet of maize. They also began to feast on pork, a real delicacy that most had last seen more than 18 months before. Feral pigs could be seen in the valley, and these were shot for the pot. But it was a copper bath that really was the luxury the men had not seen for over a year. The huge copper cistern was heated by logs, and they had hot baths as often as they wanted, even in the midst of the freezing mountain weather. While Rates is enjoying his bathing and crispy pork, a world away in Holland, President Paul Kruger was mulling over a coded letter sent by Jan Smuts and Louis Boerter. Remember last week I explained how Boerter and Smuts had begun to question Boer tactics, and Smuts in particular was growing more certain that this war could not continue. He was aware of the reports of the death of women and children in concentration camps, and his men had run out of just about everything, even their will to fight. Kruger had initially installed himself in the Hotel de Paibach in Utrecht in January 1901, but by June he'd moved to a guest house called Casa Kara in Hilversum. This is where he and his secretary Leitz met to discuss Smuts's letter. As Martin Bossenbroek, the Dutch historian, explains, Leitz was the best equipped to deal with factual matters. He knew that an intervention by a world power in the Anglo-Boer War was not on the cards, that no weapons could make it through the British control of the sea. However, the long war was beginning to take its toll on the British public, who had tired of the constant lines of war-wounded and the sick returning home from a distant African conflict. Leitz also knew that the Cape Colony Boers were growing restless as the reports of the concentration camp hell began to filter into their consciousness. But the most important question was up to President Kruger to answer. Should the Boers continue fighting or make peace? And it was the stubborn elder who provided the answer swiftly and emphatically. The two Boer republics of the Free State and the SAR or the Transvaal had started the war together and they would end it fighting to the last. Both had made huge sacrifices so far and therefore there would be no surrender. Even if, God forbid, the situation became hopeless and further resistance impossible, wrote Kruger. In other words, they would continue to fight until it was no longer feasible. Kruger thought at this point that it was feasible, but Smuts knew deep down that there was going to be a bad ending to this terrible war for the Boers. Kruger composed a telegram to Smuts ordering the Boers to continue fighting to the bitter end. It was signed by Leitz on Kruger's behalf and then coded and sent to Smuts on June 11, 1901. The telegram was decoded in Pretoria by the Dutch Consul General Domela Nievenhuis, who then sealed the contents in an envelope ready to be collected. However, Lord Kitchener wouldn't hear of the enemy making use of his communication lines to deliver the message and ordered the Dutch consul to make the trip back to Staniton, south of Johannesburg, from where his assistant, Rusukhard Biskop, had collected Smut's original letter for Kruger. Kitchener laid on a special train for the Dutch, along with an escort of 100 men. The British commander thought the letter contained good news and so made sure the telegram moved quickly back to Staniton. Smuts collected it there on the 15th of June. 
The British had not cracked the Dutch cipher code at this point. They did later. Or Kitchener would probably have not laid on anything special had he known that Kruger had ordered the war to continue. When the contents of the telegram became known, it actually gave the Boers a shot in the arm. But there had been other incidents in recent weeks that had given them another reason for hope. On the 29th of May, General Jan Kemp had inflicted heavy losses on a British column at Flakfontein in the western Transvaal. And on the 12th of June, General Chris Muller had overpowered an Australian unit of 350 men of the 5th Victorian Mounted Rifles at Wilmansrust near Ermelo in the eastern Transvaal. The Boers seized the all-important pom-poms as well as a large cache of ammunition and weapons, clothing and food, and the news improved Boer morale. As we will see, this was a false dawn, a little sprinkling of positive news in what was really an impossible situation. We must halt proceedings now and next week pick up Raid's story again as he hides out in his lair eating pork crackling and bread. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and use our website abwarpodcast.com to send emails to me. Thanks to everyone who contacted me this week, some great comments. Remember, you can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week. Goodbye. <laughs> Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari mare.